Destro Swim Towers. Gain strength in the water with a tower of power. Save $150 per double swim tower by using code BRETT, B-R-E-T-T, at checkout. DestroMachines.com. All right, Wayne Goldsmith, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you doing? I'm going great. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you and all your listeners. Wonderful to be here. Yep, thank you. I appreciate it. I uh, got myself a new camera. I'm real happy about kind of. I'm I'm fanatical about the way things look now and the way things sound. <laughs> I don't know. I think starting a podcast has kind of um, got me into that realm. But um, Nate, uh, my producer, has inspired me to kind of put some of this stuff in the background. Uh, my favorite photograph in the world, uh, right back here, is Eamon Sullivan swimming the 50 freestyle in uh, world record time, I believe, at the time. So um, beautiful photo back there. I've got the. Uh, I've got the Sydney 2000 um, Australian Olympic team back here. I've got Bruno Fratis' uh, medal from um, from 2021 in the 50 freestyle, uh, replica of it back there. Um, so some pretty good stuff back there. But anyway, listen, um, appreciate you being here. This is awesome. Um, one of the most prolific writers of um, swimming that I've, I've ever met, you know, the stuff that you've had out there for, for years I've been fascinated with. Um, and, and I think you hit on so many great points. Just to tell us a little bit about yourself, if for those that maybe don't know you around the world. Well, I live on the Gold Coast. I've just turned 60, Gold Coast, Australia, that is. And uh, I've got four crazy kids that keep me highly occupied and keep me up to date with musical taste by telling me that I've got no musical taste. <laughs> but um, I grew up in Sydney. I failed high school very badly and did a succession of fairly mediocre jobs. I worked as a storm and packer, so someone who packed things like lawnmowers in boxes and lifted them onto trucks. I hated all that stuff. I worked in a bank. I hated that. And at one stage, a friend said to me, Goldie, uh, which is my nickname, said, Goldie, you're always interested in sport when you're at school. Why don't you see if there's a career in there somewhere? So one thing led to another. I went back and I had to redo the last year of high school, got my way into the University of Canberra and started studying sports science. And there was a job going that was advertised in the bar, funny enough, in the bar at the university for a swimming coach. And I thought, well, I've got no experience, but I, I swam a little bit at school. I certainly did water polo at school. And I went and applied and the coach of the program, the age group program I applied to was Carol Gathercole, who I had no idea who she was or how influential that name was in Australian swimming. So I worked with her as an age group coach for a while and just loved it, fell in love with the sport as so many of us do. And I didn't have any concept of what that would lead to because her husband, Terry, was on deck coaching Lindley Frame, who would go on to win a world championship in 100 breast in 91 in Perth. Phil Rogers would go on to win a bronze medal in breaststroke in Barcelona 92. And I had no idea that he'd been a world record holder as an athlete and had coached Australian gold medalists at the Olympic Games since the 1950s. And she said, well, look, Terry's struggling a little bit with health. Would you go over and help him a few mornings a week? And part of that then led to meeting some of the AIS sports science, sports medicine team who became friends and really good friends even to this day. So I had this bizarre situation of working in a bank towards the end of 88, 1988, to six months later, working in the morning with almost no experience, in the morning with a world-class coach, 
coaching my own age groupers in the afternoon, studying sports science at university, and socially mixing with people like Dr. David Pine, Dr. Bruce Mason, Dr. Louise Burke, all these great people who are working with the Australian swimming team as sports science, sports medicine support. And I was immersed in that environment for about 10 years. And then along the, the way, over the next year, I was appointed as head of sports science, sports medicine and research for Swimming Australia. And that was a big step because I then got to work on a daily basis with one of our great coaches, Don Talbot, and somebody who would become a very close friend of mine, Coach Bill Sweetenham. And I was touring with Don or Bill or both of them for about 20 weeks a year from 93 onwards. And that allowed me again to be immersed and be surrounded by some of the best swimming minds. And I mean, as a, an example, someone was asking me the other day about what it was like. And I said, in 1996, leading into Atlanta, I was in Cairns for three weeks with the late Gennady Turetsky, Alex Popov, Glenn Hausman, Matt, uh, Michael Klim, Patria Thomas, some of these great Olympians and world-class athletes for three weeks with them. And then in another part of the world in Singapore, there was a national distance swimming camp led by John Carew, where there was Kieran Perkins mm. and so many other great Grant Hackett coming through and some of the other great distance swimmers were over there. So I went from working with Gennady and seeing Popov every day for three weeks to then flying to Singapore to spend time and watch Perkins every day. And then as it turned out, both Perkins and, and Popov were successful in Atlanta. So having that opportunity to see the campaigns, the successful campaigns of sprinters and distance swimmers by that type of diversity of approach really accelerated my learning. And that's what I, I did really for a long period of time. After the 2000 Olympics, I went to England for a little while with Bill Sweetenham and did some work around helping to set up some of the systems and processes he had in place. Came back and did a uh, interesting concept called the post-host review review, which was <laughs> something the Australian government wanted me to do where I went and visited the nations that had hosted the Olympics since the 1960s to try and understand what they'd done leading into the home Olympics and then what they changed after hosting the mm -hmm. home Olympics. That was a, a very insightful process. Somehow got picked up into the Australian Triathlon Program 2003 and walked in the Athens opening ceremony with the Australian team in 2004. From that, some connections got me into things like rugby, rugby league, Australian rules, cricket, motorsport, believe it or not. And for the last 15, 16 years, that's what it's been very much like is that I drift in and out of different engagements, sometimes with football codes, sometimes with professional sports in other areas, but always come back to my first love, which is swimming and aquatic sport. Mate, interesting life, interesting story. But where, what about the, the, the writing and the recording and the sharing and the coaching of coaches? When did all that kind of start to take place? Well, I was always, I always loved to write, but lacked confidence. And, and in 19, going that far back, going back to 19, I think it was probably 1990 even, there was a writing competition in Australia, which was funded by a former cigarette company here. And 
they were looking for people to write something in coaching and sports science, bridging the gap between coaching and sports science. Mm. And even then, I thought the way that we taught energy systems, for example, was completely wrong because you'd sit at a level one coaching course and they'd say, well, look, there's ATP, CP, there's a lactic energy system, then there's aerobic system. And I remember talking that over with candidates and they would say, well, it means that first 10 seconds is only ATP, CP and the first minute is only lactate. And after that, it's only aerobic. I said, well, no, they, they all work at the same time. They're just a different degrees and different levels. So I decided to write an article for this competition called Teaching Old Dogs New Tricks, New Ways of Teaching Energy Systems to Coaches. Mm. And somehow I fluked a $1,000 prize and went, hang on a minute, I might be able to write for this market. <laughs> and that little bit of encouragement was all I needed. And you know, I'll, I'll write something every day, sometimes sport related, sometimes I write letters to people about uh, trying to inspire them. I had a, a swimmer that I used to work with in 2000 who sent me something that blew my mind. I mean, you know what it's like working with swimmers. The greatest thing is the relationships that you form uh, more important than anything. And she was a young age grouper who had a lot of talent early on, but then other things came along and she decided it wasn't for her. But coaching was an absolute joy. Her family were beautiful. They used to bring me coffee and biscuits. And it, I mean, they would, it was just a joy to be involved and around the family. And she was coming back from an injury and I wrote her a letter saying, I believe in you and that you've proven you can overcome anything and that life will give you a lot of setbacks, but what you're learning now will help you to achieve in any situation for the rest of your life. And she contacted me through Facebook last week and sent me a copy of that letter that I'd written mm. at the end of 99 that has wow. been framed and is still in her bedroom now as a married woman with three kids. Wow. And, you know, I think writing those things are just as important and and just as wonderful as writing something that you see published online somewhere mate awesome stuff i wish uh i wish i could have an impact like that on somebody that's pretty cool but um uh, there are some things that i do want to talk about some specific things because uh people do come to this channel for education for learning i get uh, coaches all the time um wanting to come on here and and better themselves and and I think a lot of the information I talked to you about this off camera is, is, you know, it took me a bit of trial and error to figure some of this stuff out where if I just had have come to you and read it, I could have, you know, and believed it, um, I could have cut out some of the, the pain in my life, you know, of learning some of this stuff early. So I want, want people to come to, 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 you know, where you're handing out information. We can talk about some of the areas maybe where they can click on some of the, that stuff to access the stuff you're putting out. Um, in a minute, but specifically, I want to talk about a couple of little areas where I think were huge learning curves for me and, and trying to figure out um, how best to get the best out of my athletes. And one of the things I learned uh, pretty quickly, pretty early on was it wasn't so much about um, the physiology. Um, you know, it was more about the, the, the connection with the athlete and the way that I was implementing the workouts and the way that we were performing at the workouts rather than just the workout itself. And I, I would get coaches all the time say to me, send me a workout. And, and I would say to them, but it's just numbers on a, on a piece of paper. It's, it really doesn't mean that much. I mean, anyone can really write a workout, but it's the art of implementing the workout. And you've, you've, you've spent 
many hours around some of the, the greatest coaches in Australia's history. And I think you probably learned from them and, and saw from them that it, it was more than just the 3100s that John Carew was writing. It was how it was being done kind of thing. And, and you told me a story about Kieran Perkins a minute ago, which I think kind of goes hand in hand with exactly what I'm talking about here, right? Well, it's, it's true. And it, it's um, having come originally from a sports science background where I had access to some of the great physiologists and great minds in swimming physiology, certainly here and other places around the world, you can be, you can get to the point where you believe that it's about the content. So the volume, intensity, frequency of your workouts, that the content is what matters. So what's written is the most important. And typically that's what we teach. So session one, number one, level one coaching course, physiology of swimming. And we talk about sets and volume and intensity and repeat times and heart rates and all those things. So when we write a workout on the board, we might write 10 100s or 20 50s on 130 holding PB plus five or 75% or whatever marker you use to manage intensity. Mm -hmm. And that's easy to teach. And that's what we call the content of your workout, if you like, that's the science of swimming. But you very quickly come to realize that every time you write a workout, you write the content with the underlying assumption that the swimmers will do the content with the intent that was behind it. It's that marriage of content and intent, the mm. marriage of science and the art of coaching. And it's the stuff that's not written or what I talk about now is the gaps between what's written on the whiteboard. So written on the whiteboard might be 2050s, but what's not written there? What's in the gap? Mm. And the story you and I were talking about earlier, I'm happy to, to relate it again, was back in the 1990s, I was working for Swimming Australia and going just on the road constantly learning from some of our best coaches. And I was on deck with John Carew, may rest in peace, who was coaching Kieran Perkins, the, the dual Olympic gold medalist, world record holder in 415-100 freestyle, of course. And we would we were talking about sessions and workout plans and loading and all those things. And I remember distinctly two things that he said. He said, if I'm so good, where's the rest of them? Mm. And what he meant by that, when we started to talk, he said, they're all doing the same workout. Why does he get a different result? And someone might argue, well, there's uh, genetic differences. Yes, there were. But what I observed was this, is that Kieran was doing a set of hundreds. He was doing them on around about 140 and he was holding between 58.5 and about 59.1 for the entire set of 20, 24, whatever he was doing at the moment. And I was watching and the pace almost never varied. Stroke count was exactly the same. Stroke rate was the same. Breathing in terms of the number of breaths and where he took the breath was identical. And I said to Carew, we're talking about the workout and he said, the difference between Perkins and the rest is they're doing 24 100s. He's doing one perfect 100 24 times in succession. Mm. So he knows he can do that when and where it really matters. Mm. And, you know, it's like the light goes on your head that coming in at that time, working mainly in sports science for Swimming Australia, I'm looking at what's written, but it's this, there's this magnitude, these piles and piles of, of, of intent and assumed knowledge and, uh, instinct and intuition and uh, Carew used to talk about teaching a lesson a week. He said one of our simplest tasks as a coach 
is to teach our athletes one lesson a week. That's 52 lessons a year. If they're with you for five or six years, that's hundreds of lessons that they've got and they've accumulated. So when they get to that level, he's swimming that set of hundreds with that accumulated lesson a week. Mm. And all those little things about when to breathe, where to breathe, stroke count, stroke rate, where to streamline, where to come out, where to break out, that's been there and been placed by that lesson a week concept over such a long period of time. And it, it, because I've been exposed to so many people like him and then internationally with coaches in different parts of the world, you start to realise that it's the gaps and what's not written that defines great coaching. Mm. Man, I, I love that story. I just love it. I, I'm going to I'm gonna clip that. Nate's going to clip it for us, and we're just going to replay that because it's so powerful. It's so true. Um, so many – it doesn't even have to be the 24 100s that you talk about. It could be anything, but you take the concept of exactly what you were talking about with the way Kieran was doing it, and you take any of the best athletes that I've ever coached, and that's exactly what they were doing time and time again. Um, is just figuring that out. And once, once an athlete can figure that out, then you create separation with everybody else. That's when you become the Kieran Perkins. And, and you're right. Kieran had um, some things about him physically that maybe separated him from other people for sure. Um, and, and some of the great athletes do. But I'm telling you, it's the application of the process, daily process that really separates people. And I love that aspect of their event, heat, lane, name of swimmer, times and places. It's called Swim Nerd Live, and it allows the data and times from your actual scoreboard to be broadcast and viewed in real time on any smart TV, phone, or other device. There are so many things you can do with this software. A very simple and easy to use necessity for any team or facility that is live streaming their meets results. One click on any device and they're watching your swim meet live in real time. Go to swimpractice.com to learn more. Um, you, you write about commitment and it's really difficult to coach commitment. Um, it, it's, it's hard to understand it. It's hard to coach it. Um, you, you uh, I, I wrote some notes here where you talk about empower, inspire, and, and the power of their choice. I love those things. Can you talk to me about commitment a little bit here? Well, this comes from a, a session on deck with somebody we both know and admire, uh, Coach Marsh, David Marsh. Uh, or as we would say in Australia, mate, as you know, Marshy, that I had a great honour when uh, Frank Bush was running the US team and they were here for Panpacks on the Gold Coast. I got invited to attend a few sessions and... Uh, as you know, the rivalry between Australia and the US, it was like being invited into the belly of the beast, mm. into the heart of the enemy. And um, it, look, it was great. And of course, in the water, I think Missy was still swimming and, and Michael was, of course, there. And Lochte was there and uh, Ledecky and, and I mean, all the, the great swimmers. And for me, it was fantastic to watch them go about doing what they were doing because I'd seen the Australian team many times. But to see the way that they did what they do and have conversations with coaches was, was wonderful. But the thing that stood out from, from one afternoon session in Brisbane with those guys is that Marcia and I had known each other for a long time. And, uh, you know, it's like you, you develop friendships. I'd known Eddie Reese for a long time and, you know, you get to know wonderful people all over the world in this sport. 
Mm. And Marsh and I were talking, and the question I asked him is one that I ask a lot of coaches. I said, if you were going to recruit someone to your program, but you weren't allowed to use physical indicators, so you couldn't look at their their best uh, high school times, you couldn't look at, at their their best US age or open times, you mm. couldn't test them. If you were going to recruit them on a non-physical quality, what would it be? And he said, commitment. And I said, agree with you. I said, the problem is, Marshy, is as you know, we can measure physiology, speed, agility, endurance, power, and we can coach those things. The issue we've got is that coaches who've been in it for a while know that commitment is key because once you say the athlete is committed, it takes what it takes. There are no excuses. You just get the job done. The challenge is, what is commitment? If I, I try to coach that in my, my training programs, mm. how do I coach commitment? Now, David Marsh came up with this, and I, I always credit him and 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 it, because it was so simple in its understanding and definition, and the beauty is from this understanding, you can coach commitment. Because he said, you know what I think, and this is David Marsh talking, he said, you know what I, I think is that the difference between an athlete who's committed and not committed, he said, it's like the difference between the easy way and the hard way. And he said, I think that a committed athlete, when given a choice, and the, the word, when he said choice, okay, that that's changed the last 10 years of my thinking, mm. uh, seven years of my thinking, that he said that when you give a committed athlete the choice of doing things the easy way or the hard way, they will choose the hard way, or if you like, the easy way and the right way, they will choose the right way. And it just happened that Lochte was in the pool doing some fair, just some steady aerobic work. And Marshy, it was just, a, it was again, a magic moment like the, the Perkins issue that Marshy said, let's walk with him for a while. I mean, what an opportunity to mm. walk next to Lochte mm. with David Marsh. And he said, when he gets to the flags, like every swimmer in the world, he's mm. got a choice. He can breathe inside the flags. He can decelerate. He can spend time on the wall by being a bit too tightly tucked. He can have a rest on the wall. He can come up before the flags. He can breathe on first stroke. Or he, not me as coach, he can choose to not breathe inside the flags, to accelerate in and out, to explode off the wall, to not breathe until his ankles are way past the flags, kick powerfully to the surface, not breathe first three strokes and continue. And then Marshy said, let's see what he chooses. And Marshy did nothing, no signals, nothing. Just, And then, of course, Lochte, being the great underwater practitioner that he was, chose to do things the right way. Mm. And we went out, we, I mean, we talked about this for hours. But then what that's done, Hawkey, when I do courses and conferences now with coaches, I say, guys, it's about choice. Instead of saying to the athletes, you will do this, you present options and then give them the opportunity to go, what would happen if I didn't breathe there? What would happen if I exploded off the wall? What would happen if I breathed every three and flyer instead of every one? What would happen if I uh, came to the middle of the lane with 10 meters to go on every repeat and exploded race style to the wall? That's the, the beauty of this concept of the power of choice is that once swimmers go, and I'm not talking about five-year-olds, once, once swimmers have got, you know, if it is to be, it is up to me. If mm. I choose to do this the right way, the cumulative effect of that is going to give me what I want. But that all came from David Marsh saying two things. Easy way, hard way. 
is the definition of commitment. And it's about the choices that the swimmers make. And, you know, again, I've got nothing against physiology. As I say, some of my best friends are physiologists, but I, I just don't think physiology is is the cornerstone of coaching success. I just think it's a tool. And the more I spend time with people like Carew and, and Marsh and some of the others I've had the chance to work with, the more I'm convinced that we overplay physiology and we underplay coaching. Well, mate, I was off camera there just because I wanted to. I wanted to get a close up of you do that, but I'll, I'm here and I'm listening with intent. But uh, but and that and that word intent, um, that's kind of the word that I use instead of choice. I do a lot of clinics around the country now, and the first thing I do when I go to a clinic with kids I've never met before in, in a variety of of skills, you know, in a variety of ages, we tend to kind of line them up from 12 to 17. You know, we'll we'll have a a couple hour session. And I've never met these kids before. And I say, okay, give me a, a 200 warm up. They get in and they just slop around. I get them out of the water and I talk about this word intention. Okay. And then it, it's kind of similar to choice, but you know, what is your intention? Every time you approach a wall, you, you, you have a choice and your intention can be, I'm going to get into this wall and out of this wall the best I know how to. And that's kind of what I talk about. We talk about um, intent you know, for me. And so what I say is I want you to think about the way that you're streamlining. I want you to wait, think about the way that you're approaching the wall and turning and coming off that wall and breaking out. And, and I don't even teach them anything that they know these things already kids that I've never worked with before. And I say, just swim again, let's do another 200 and this time swim with intention. And when they do it, they look like completely different swimmers because they, they already know how to do it. But when you emphasize it and talk about it, and then, like you said, give them the choice to do it right, they know how to do it right. It's just that they get caught up in being part of a group and just going through the motions type thing. And so, um, you know, a little light bulb goes off for a lot of these kids when we talk about intention and, and give them choice. And, and look, I, I swam for David Marsh. I was a very average um, Australian swimmer before I went to Auburn University. It's just the bottom line. I was. I was an average Australian swimmer, and I was at I was at my peak growth. I, I went to America when I was 21 years old. I was basically a grown man, and I was an average swimmer. And I came back, and I became you know an Olympian, double Olympian, one of the one of the fastest swimmers in the world by learning these methods from David Marsh, who you talk about here. But it was just a man that gave me um, choice and showed me the intention to do things the right way and i learned how to do them on a regular basis and just became one of the best swimmers in the world by swimming with this intention and having this choice that i had so mate i love everything that you're saying with that um and so when it comes to commitment like you're saying commitment can be taught then yeah and that's the beauty of it and i like that story you've just told about the clinics because i do age group clinics from time to time and i I'll often do an exercise, say, okay, guys, we're going to do a 200 free easy warm-up, same type of thing, but not the 200 is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. um, it could be 100, for it doesn't matter. It's, it's interesting. Every time you mention a distance, somebody somewhere in the world listening to your show has just written that down. Mm -hmm. But I'll often say to the, to the swimmers, because I, I totally agree, by the time they're early to mid-teens, they know what they need to know but they're choosing for whatever reason not to do it and i'll, I'll say okay guys well, we're going to do a 200 freestyle 
um, how would an average club level swimmer do a 200 freestyle? And they go, oh, well, they jump in and they'd swim 200 free. And so, yeah, exactly. What about someone heading to state championships? How do you think they would do a 200 free? Well, they'd streamline and they wouldn't breathe inside the flags and they wouldn't breathe last three strokes and they'd finish, you know, head forward, hips up, uh, ear on shoulder, all that stuff. Um, excellent. Okay, now if we were watching a world-class swimmer, how do you think they'd, oh, wow, Wayne, they'd, they'd count their strokes and they'd attack the walls and say, okay, so what you're telling me is, you know, mm-hmm. you know how to swim this. Why are you choosing not to do it that way? Mm-hmm. Why are you choosing to be less than you can be? Why are you choosing to be less than the exceptional person that you are when you know what it's going to take to be there? Why would you make that choice? So then we'll line them up at the end of the blocks and same as you've done and say, guys, I'm not interested in speed. I'm not interested in how fast you do this. I'm interested in the choices that you're going to make because this will set, you know, start the way you want to finish. This will set the tone for the clinic. And mm-hmm. I agree. I, I think it's coaching is now it's gone from telling and yelling to connecting, engaging, inspiring. It's gone from volume of voice to forensic questioning, to asking the right questions. Because if you ask someone a question, they have to engage or be rude. And if you tell them, it's like yelling at your kids to pick up rubbish on their floors or to tidy up their rooms. They can choose to ignore a command or a direction. Very difficult for them to not engage with a question. So instead of saying to the kids, don't breathe inside the flags, don't breathe inside, don't breathe inside the flags, the better thing is, where did you take your last breath? How do you mm-hmm. think that would have affected your wall? Mm-hmm. What would you think might happen if you didn't breathe those last two or three? What do you think something that you could do now to make that better? Oh, coach, I think I could, uh, I'll do another one and I won't breathe last five strokes and I'll accelerate towards the teeth. That's a good decision you've made. It, it's just a matter of reframing the information we're giving them instead of it being me telling and giving. It's about me saying, let them come up with a solution themselves because mm. then they own the solution. Mm. They then take responsibility for swimming the solution that they themselves have come up with. And you know, I often get hooky, and I'm sure you you have this argument or discussion with coaches, is I'll say, oh, well, that's a, a soft way of coaching. Well, no, it's not. You've, we've just gone from saying to athletes, I will drive it, I will give you the energy, I will push, I will to saying, now you and I are going to work together on this. You already know what you need to do. I'm going to give you the opportunity to make the choices that will help you get where you want to go. And I'm going to facilitate it. I'm not going to make you do it. I'm not going to force you to do it. I'm going to empower you to make choices that will give you everything that you're looking for. Man, I love that. Love it completely. I couldn't agree anymore. I wish I could apply it to my children, actually. I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I could yeah, good luck. That. Me too. Tell me how to. <laughs> got some twin girls up there right now. I'm like, I'm trying to figure this out. How can I apply this to them? Looking to host your first swim meet or replacing an old timing system? Run a swim meet with ease from your laptop using superior swim timing. You can use superior swim timing with your existing equipment or they can provide you with a complete timing solution, including deck harnesses, buttons, and starter. SST is fully compatible with Hi-Tech and Team Unify, as well as Colorado, Daktronics, and Amiga touchpads. Go to superiorswimtiming.com to learn more, and be sure to tell them I sent you.
One of the other things you talk about is the myth of technical perfection. And, and I love this too, because I was, um, I was kind of in an era where physiology was a huge part of Australian swimming. And, um, and a man named Alex Popoff came to, to swim in Australia in 1993 after the, after the two, uh, 92 Olympics, after he won gold at the age of 21 in the 1500 freestyle. And, um, and really kind of reinvented, reinvigorated Australian sprinting um, along with his coach, Gennady Turetsky, um, you know, God rest his soul as well. We, we lost him last year, but um, really changed the way uh, we, we thought about sprinting. But um, back when I was uh, growing and learning, physiology was still a big part of it. And, um, and, and this, this idea of swimming a certain way and what, the physiologists at the time, you know, not to call anyone out or not to blame anybody or anything like that, but it was like, look at the way Alex swims. Everybody needs to swim like him. We're going to study Alex and you have to swim exactly the way Alex was swimming. And for a period of time, I did that and I, and I tried that. And I just realized that I'm not Alex Popoff and I, I'm not six foot seven and I don't have the wingspan that he has. I don't have the feet. I don't have the legs. I, I just wasn't him. And I became very frustrated with this process of trying to swim like Alex. And, and whoever it was, what I found is they, they would find a model and say, that's how you have to swim. And what I found, to cut a long story short, is what I would do for myself over time is I would take a piece of Alex Popov. I'd take a piece of Michael Klim. I'd take a piece of Ian Thorpe. And I would look at some of the things they did well and say, how could I do that? How could I incorporate that into what I'm doing? Would it work? Does it fit? If it doesn't, put it out, bring something else in, and just tried to mold myself into being a better athlete based on what I was seeing from other people rather than just mimicking and copying one person. Does that make sense? Yeah, look, it does. And I, my early days in swimming, I was heavily influenced and still am by Sweetenham and Talbot, uh, Ken Wood, uh, you know, the Gatha Coles, obviously, I mean, the people that were doing and doing huge volumes, Laurie Lawrence, doing huge volumes of non-specific aerobic work, mm -hmm. believing that we had to build this huge aerobic base mm -hmm. and then we'd do a drop taper at the end and hopefully things had come good. Gennady comes out in 93. And so I've been influenced and I love these guys and Bill is still a close friend. Mm. And, but that's all I knew. And then Gennady comes out and he did this presentation in 93, which again, relating to the Dave Maas story and the Johnny Carew story, another one of these moments that my head exploded because Gennady stood there not speaking great English and in front of all of our great coaches at the time, he said, you know why you don't produce sprinters? He said, because basically you do your slow work too fast and your fast work too slow. You don't actually sprint. And mm. that started to get people thinking a little bit. And he said also, there, he started talking about volume of training. And he said, uh, he said, Alex, will re and I've, I've walked up and down with Alex countless hours and Gennady uh, and a training camp with Gennady in 96 in may so still a few months out from atlanta they were hitting 88 90 k's a week and no, no one i hear these stories oh they were doing 20 k's a week absolute rubbish they were working but it was the mix that was quite fascinating is that 
in the morning they might go eight or nine k's but it was very very easy relaxed aerobic they might come in the afternoon and do two and a half k with some world-class sprint times but the variation was was remarkable mm. but then they were doing beach running during the day and we were throwing medicine balls on the beach and it was I mean, you could do 10 hours just on Gennady. But there were a couple of things Gennady, I, I became a convert. And I was working at the AIS one day, then I might be in Perth the next day talking to coaches, saying, oh, Pop-Up does this, Pop-Up does that, Pop-Up does this. And I, I became swept up in it because I didn't take time to understand. All I wanted to do was go, he's great, we're not, let's copy. Mm. was dumb mm. because... Gennady then would talk and he said, isn't it interesting? Everyone around Australia is doing the lateral freestyle and the shark fin drills and all those things. We don't do the drills, he said, because he said, what I believe is we overuse drills. We don't do enough technique work with the individual swimmer. And then he drops this bomb like the David Marsh easy way, hard way. He says, Wayne, every swimmer is different. Every technique is different. And I said, explain. He said, well, just have a look at world-class swimmers. The thing that's different is their style. They've got that everyone misinterprets that as being um, the thing that really matters. If you look at swimmers, there's only two or three things that really matter. Maybe degree of elbow catch or release or pressure on the water through the through the whole movement, whatever it is. But he said every swimmer is different. Therefore, every technique is different. Trying to make everyone look like Alex or anybody else is folly. So I'm armed now with that and I'm thinking so then I go I don't know to Scotland and they pull out their level one textbook and it goes Benui's principle oh save me um, it talks about pressure differentials hand, between upper and lower surfaces of the hand and forearm talk to Ernie Magliscio he doesn't even believe that and he's the guy that wrote about it <laughs> in the early 80s not long after councilman um, that, that that People are still teaching the myth of biomechanical perfection must be 45 degrees, must bend at 90, must release at hip. It just doesn't apply. And the, the time that it really hit me was ICAR, who were working with the International Center for Aquatic Research, have had some, let's say, reputational issues at different times, that they did an, a fascinating piece of study on most of the Olympic gold medalists from Atlanta and it was published through FINA. And in that, they showed the 3D hand pictures, front mm. on, side on, of uh, Popov and Sadovyi and uh, Perkins, of course. And and the, the degree of difference between swimmers, no one was entering the water at 45 degrees. Mm. No one was sculling out 16%. No one the degree of difference of the best swimmers in the world was incredible. There was no one size fits all. Mm. And yet this, this myth of biomechanical perfection, what we do hockey is we get these young coaches come in. Someone stands up the front, usually with an advanced degree in biomechanics and says, the research says every swimmer, 45 degrees on entry, every swimmer, 90 degrees on catch. Every There is no only, never, must do's, has to be's. There are no absolutes. It's mm. your ability to adapt. Um, you know, Sweetenham talks about this a lot, and I know a lot of coaches do, that we tend to say, well, there's some core principles that we believe in, the relationship between head and hips. The alignment needs to be putting them in a body position that makes sense. Hands need to be soft and relaxed so they can actually feel the water. Feet 
relaxed and smooth and loose. I think that's something I picked up um, over the years, nice and relaxed. Um, the relationship between hand and hips, really important. Um, breathing, there, there's some broad concepts that apply mm. to everyone, but then there's so much variation and difference. And I try to say to young coaches, don't be hamstrung. Don't be put in a box and limited by chasing this obsession with the only kid who's textbook perfect is the kid whose pictures in the textbook. For everybody else, it's how do we apply broad principles of movement through water to the unique body, mind, attitude, flexibility, mobility, stability of the individual athlete. Mm -hmm. Yep. Mate, couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, I, I have an athlete here, Bruno Fratis, who won this bronze medal back here, who is six foot one, not your traditional sprinter in terms of height and length, and yet is insanely fast on top of the water. And one of the things he does, which at the time, before I started coaching him, I was uh, coaching this out of people, is move, movement of the hips. He has this wiggle in his hips that when you look at him from behind, you're like, what is he doing? It's this, <laughs> it's this wiggle, but he wiggles in order to get onto his catch, which then helps him apply the power that he needs. Now, if I was to teach this across the board, it would be a tragic mess for a lot of people. If I was to coach this out of him, he'd be a completely different athlete, wouldn't be catching any water. He'd just be an, another six foot one guy who doesn't really swim that fast. And yet here he is one of the fastest humans on earth because he has this wiggle into this catch, which then enables him to wiggle down the pool that we call it. And yet I wouldn't teach it, but I don't want to teach it out of him. Um, another prime example is you know Tatiana Schoenmaker who, who, who won the 200 breast uh, at the Olympics, broke the world record this year. One of the late, latest breathers in breaststroke I've ever seen in my life. Now, breaststroke for sure is one of those weird anomalies anyway that everybody swims at different. But, I mean, no one's teaching breaststroke the way she's swimming. And here she is yet the world record holder now and Olympic champion. But, you know, across the board, that's the way it is with technique. And, and one of the things I, I wrote down, which I loved that you say, is that uh, biomechanical perfection will drive you crazy. It was driving me crazy, mate. It was just driving me crazy. I, w I actually dreaded coming to the pool because they were trying to force this technique down my throat and I just couldn't get it. And in the end, I had to kind of be rude to, to some people of like, listen, just back the fuck off me for a second. <laughs> Let me be me. Let me figure this out. Let me swim. Just, I, I know you got a job to do. I know you're getting paid to just back off right and and i kind of took over my own swimming again and it and it liberated me it made me feel good again that I, that i could actually just be myself you know and and it wasn't against anything but anyone in particular it was just about trying to be somebody that i wasn't i just wanted to i needed to be myself and so i took that back i love that um the other thing that i love that you wrote here that i wrote down is um greatness comes from uniqueness you know and that's kind of what we're talking about here is the, is the uniqueness of, of each athlete um so these are great concepts I man. i'm loving these i'd like to introduce our newest sponsor swim angelfish swim angelfish is an online certification program that strengthens your teaching curriculum to serve swimmers of all abilities swim angelfish will prepare you and your instructors with the skills to teach swimmers with autism physical disabilities anxiety sensory and motor conditions, and more. Learn to teach skills faster and with more comfort with Swim Angelfish. Apply for an only alpha pool product scholarship and receive up to 50% off your certification. 
Go to swimangelfish.com today to apply. Uh, one of the biggest things that I come across that I think is um, huge in terms of performance and is very difficult to teach, it's very difficult to understand how to teach it, is, is this concept of confidence. A, a confident athlete is, is a productive, um, successful athlete as far as I, I'm concerned. Um, and again, I can tell my own stories here of myself and also athletes that I've worked with. But just talk to me about how you would coach confidence in an athlete or even a coach. This came from, uh, this has been evolving for a long time. Again, what I'm trying to, to do, Oki, more than anything now is I go, I can pick up my phone. Oh, I can pick up my phone. This thing means anyone can get anything, anytime, anywhere for free. Mm. It's it's no longer a matter of I've got to, I need to find out what's the best sets to do for a 200 breaststroker. It's all there. I can be laying in bed at night. Right. and watch a video of, in, in her case, Rocco Mighting from South Africa. I can watch what Rocco's done seminars and a whole bunch of interviews on newspapers. You can find out the sort of stuff or contact mm -hmm. him. He's a great guy. Or just um, watch my podcast I did with him. Uh, you, you know, he's like Rocco's. A, he's a funny guy. And, and, um, and uh, ask him one day, next time you're talking to him, ask him about having two of my kids in the back of a car and us getting charged by a white rhino and a... And a a safari park but um <laughs> but i'd long i quite often i've, I've dealt with athletes in uh swimming and i remember sam Riley a long time ago about world record holder breaststroker and a, just a a beautiful beautiful australian athlete and wonderful person that I, I remember talking to her on deck when she was the world record holder at a national breaststroke camp and she was talking about her fears and concerns about going to the 94 Commonwealth Games and then uh, in Canada and then to the Rome World Champs. And and I couldn't get my head around it, Hawkey. This is a world record holder. How, how, how can she possibly be, how can she possibly be the, uh, be nervous or be concerned? You know, how can, mm. how can she lack confidence? I mean, confidence is a 13 year old going to their first nationals mm. uh, in another state. How can, and the number of times over the years where I've worked with elite football players and I was working with a, an NR rugby league team, uh, for most of the world that's like rugby, but better. But um, I was working with a rugby league team in Sydney and one of our star players at half time of the grand final, so half time of the Super Bowl mm. equivalent, he was so lacking in confidence, his legs were shaking and he said to me, Goldie, I don't think I can go back out. And you think, well, well, what is confidence? And you start to think, well, you know, how would I define it? Because if I think confidence is important as an educator, I need to be able to tell coaches how to coach confidence. So the model that I put together, it's called, it says that confidence is belief times evidence. Now as coaches, we're really good at evidence. And I talk about confidence as being like a can, as in I can, we can, she can, they can. We all can. Confidence is like a can. Mm. And as coaches and as athletes, we fill that can full of training experiences, former competitions, strength training, good diet, plenty of sleep, flexibility work, the right gear. So we're, we're trying to fill that confidence can with evidence so that when I'm standing behind the blocks 
the two voices that are in everyone's head that's saying I can and I can't, the I can becomes very loud. A friend of mine's a comic, a famous comic in Australia, a comedian. And I said to him the other, other little while back, I said, do you get nervous before you walk out? I mean, this mm. guy's done TV, he's at his own show. And I said, do you get nervous? He said, oh, absolutely. And I said, you're kidding, mate. You've done, you've been everywhere around the world as a famous comedian. You still get nervous. So I said, how do you deal with it? And he said, well, when I'm standing behind the curtains, when those two voices come out saying, there's more people here, I don't know the first joke. He said, this other voice says, you can do this. You've done it before. You've practiced, you've rehearsed, you know the first line. He said that I can voice becomes a shout and the I can't voice, which is always there, becomes a whisper. And I thought, well, that's what we do in swimming. We go, we train a little bit harder, we do more gym work, we focus, we work on our technique and skill so that when that little voice is there at state champs, national champs, school champs, Olympic games, the I can says, I can do this, man, I've practiced this. I know I can do it. Oh, yes, but this is the Olympics. Maybe you can't. Don't make any difference. It's 50 meters, constant temperature. It's the same blocks, the same. Yeah, but you've never raced them before. doesn't matter. It's not about them. It's about me. And you have those little battles in your mind. I thought, well, I get that. Is how do you teach them? But hockey, over a period of time, I saw some swimmers like Sam uh, and many, many others who trained incredibly hard who still lacked confidence. And I thought, what's the missing link? Friend of mine's a psychologist, and she said to me, what we believe, the research tells us, is the way you feel about yourself, the way you love, value, and accept yourself as a human being, those things are there more or less by age 10. And that means that that part of the equation, confidence is belief times evidence. It doesn't matter how much evidence you've got in the can. If I have, I lack that ability to love myself for who I am, to accept me for who I am, to just value me for being me. If that's not there, then I can put all the evidence I like in that I'm still going to lack belief. And you and I both know Olympic athletes who've gone away, who haven't performed at their best when and where they should have, not because they didn't train enough, but because they lacked that essential element of belief. And one of the things I do constantly, Hawkey, is parent education and I work with parents to say that the greatest gift you can give your child isn't a pair of thousand dollar swimming costumes it's that they go to bed every night knowing with absolute certainty that they're loved valued and accepted for no reason other than they are who they are that they have absolute faith in the unconditional love that you've given them and that that's their rock that's their foundation because if parents get that right we know we'll do our job. We know coaches and athletes will do their job and fill the can with evidence. But that belief bit about how the athlete really feels about themselves when it matters most under real fatigue and pressure situations, we've got to get that right. And I don't think clubs, coaches, or even national bodies do anywhere near enough of the right type of parent education. They talk to parents about you know, the Olympic pathway model, and they talk to them about what sports drinks not to drink and um, how to manage their diet. They don't do enough work. We, I'll take responsibility. We don't do enough work with parents, swimming parents, on teaching them what it is they really need to know, which is the art of parenting. I think that's a common theme with everything I do, the art of coaching, the art of parenting. That's where I think the real, the, the future is. That's where we've got to be heading. 
Well, this is where I think a guy like Dean Boxall got it right, mate, for uh, for this past Olympics with with Ariane Titmus especially, right? Is just this this build up of confidence and build up of belief. But it, he didn't he didn't get to the Olympics and walk away and say you're on your own now. He got he went to the Olympics with her and said we're finishing this together. We're doing this together. Everywhere he went, everywhere she went, he went and to the point of almost walking her to the block and saying we're doing this together kind of thing. So there was never a gap. What I, what, the most successful coaching I've ever done is in this concept here. And, and the most success I've ever had is, is the implementation of this concept here, right? So when I had tremendous success, for, for example, with Cesar Cielo at the Olympics in 2008, what I realized, because I, I just retired from swimming two years earlier, and what I found is there were, there were gaps in moments where my brain would allow this I can't to be louder than the I can. And, and what I found is when my coaches, when my teammates, when, my, when, when uh, people around me gave me space and allowed me to have this, these moments by myself, the, these, this voice got louder. And so what I did as a coach is recognizing when those moments were going to take place and being there with my athlete, you know, like when, when, and, and this is kind of like, you know, uh, an example of when an athlete goes to put their suit on uh, back in the day, when Caesar broke the world record in Rome, I remember walking into the locker room and helping him zip it up because I didn't want him to be there at that point in time and not have anyone to, 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 to zip and for him to be thinking anything, to be having any, any doubt. So I allowed him to go into the locker room for a couple of minutes put the suit on to the point where he needed to put it on. And then that final moment I came in and I just put his, his back together and I zipped it up. And then I walked to the ready room with him and said, we're doing this together. Didn't allow him to, to get caught up in any doubtful moments, you know, and, and this partnership. And I'm telling you, that's where I've had the most success as a coach is almost holding hands with your athlete and saying, we're doing this together. We've come this far. I'm not going to let you go now. We're going to finish this. And when you are there with them, you know, basically holding their hand and saying, we're, we're walking in the block together. That gives them so much confidence. And I, and I can tell that's kind of what Boxel did here in this situation. He wasn't going to let, uh, you know, Ariane Titmus just walk in and, and face Ledecky alone. He's like, we're, we're going in there together. We're facing her together. And that gave her a tremendous amount of confidence. Um, is that making sense to you? It, it's a, look, it's a great story. And, a great concept and what a brilliant job he did what they they both did mm. at the olympics yeah look i well, you talk to the psychologist and I, it's very difficult knowing this will upset them it's very difficult to find a great sports psychologist who understands the difference between what i call welfare psychology and genuine performance psychology because look in a perfect world we can give the swimmers the mental skills that they need to be completely independent strong and resilient walk out there by themselves and take on the world, be brilliant at mindfulness, you know, recognizing negative thoughts and just letting them fly away without mm. taking them out and all those things. And they're all great skills. I'm a, I'm a big fan at starting to teach mental skills with five-year-olds and, and it's critically important. In a perfect world, we can give the swimmers all the mental tools that they need to be totally independent and all those things, but it ain't a perfect world. And everyone's got little flaws and fractures and breaks and problems and stresses and 
things that they're dealing with from different parts of their lives. And that's where the relationship between coach and athlete becomes powerful and the understanding of knowing your athletes. And look, going back to that that football example, so we were the, the, the highest level of professional football in that code in Australia, uh, players receiving close to a million dollars a year. And I've got at halftime of our Super Bowl, the NRL grand final, at halftime, the player is sitting, a highly experienced player, but at that moment in time, just couldn't go out after mm. the halftime break. And the head coach, very, very experienced guy, now in his early 70s and, and incredibly experienced, came in and he sat down next to him mm-hmm. and spoke really quietly to him, mm-hmm. put his arm around his shoulder and they laughed and the player went out and did well. And I asked the head coach on the way back up to the box, I said, what did you do? And he said, Wayne, he didn't need a psychologist. He needed his dad. Mm-hmm. And that was it, is that he knew it. I could have stood there and shouted slogans and talked about the training and the lead up and how great he'd played and how amazing his stats were in the first half. He didn't need that. What he needed was someone who knew him, who cared about him and loved him to sit down next to him, mm-hmm. tell him, hey, mate, I'm here. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm here for you and mm-hmm. I believe in you. And then off he went. Yep. And that's underrated. I, 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 again, I think the psychologists have got a lot to offer, but but trying to solve those types of problems or prepare athletes to win when and where it matters purely on mental skills alone, it, it's not about that. There are, like the physiologist, they're a, a tool to be used at the right time in the right way in the right situation, but it's always going to be athlete-coach relationship that determines pretty much everything that happens in our sport. Yeah, mate, I, mate, I couldn't agree more with that concept either. You know, like I said, I've had my best success doing little things just like that. You know, it's just that moment where the athlete needs to feel that there's a partnership. Then they're, they're not alone. This isn't on you. It's not the end of the earth. We're, we're in this together. You know, win or lose, we're, we're going, we're going up together, we're going down together. Whatever it is, we're all here. We're, we're doing it together, and that that's been the key. And and like a, you know, Bruno back here, this this Olympic medal, I'm I'm texting him, I'm Facetiming him that day, I'm texting him up to the moment be, before he walks behind the block, just to let him know I'm with him. Even though I wasn't in Tokyo, I wanted him to know I was right there with him. And that's an important aspect of coaching that you're not going to find in. In, in most books, but you're going to find it in, in a lot of the literature that you write, mate. You write really good stuff. So uh, just in terms of that, you know, where can people access some of your information? Usually a, a great place is uh, I write a section in Swimming World called Gold Mines. I've done that for about 20 years. And there's always a, a topic in there that I'm interested in that and quite often that I've picked up from other sports on confidence or belief or choice, which is a big theme at the moment. Social media, I tend to put a lot of things on LinkedIn. I'll wake up in the morning and and go, well, I've got an idea I want to share with people. I don't know about you, but I found there's not a lot of money in this business, but you sleep well because you know every day you're helping somebody. Mm -hmm. And um, so quite often through, if you just Google uh, Wayne Goldsmith, LinkedIn or Facebook, those there's I've I've got a, a website with WG Coaching School where I've got courses that coaches can do on the soft skills of swimming coaching, but a lot of it is on just improving coaching generally. How do you get better at coaching? And they're always a story. I, I mean, you know what it's like with the work you're doing now, the great work that you're being recognized for in, 
it's it's brilliant that that out of a, a session like we've just done what will people remember a couple of catchphrases but probably the david marsh story the Carew story maybe the sam riley story the footballer story as a species we communicate what's important to us by storytelling and many of our most ancient cultures have survived for thousands of years on the back of their storytelling and because once you start telling a story there's an empathy and there's emotion and there's mm -hmm. there's i'm sharing a bit more of myself which connects with people generally more than data so all the courses that i do are usually a topic and then illustrated by a story from an experience i may have had and then wrapped up with some practical application so it's really just a matter of going to good old dr google uh, the cure for all ills and uh, going wayne goldsmith coaching and uh, my website or something will come up that you'll be able to connect through a variety of different ways well, mate, I, I haven't had a chance uh, before this moment right here to tell you you've had an influence on my career big time. I, I read a lot of your stuff. I've taken a lot of your stuff in. I've never taken the time to write back to you and say that you've influenced me. So here's my chance. Um, you do a fantastic job, mate. You you have for many years. I love the work that you do. I, I love the way that you've figured it out too. Um, so people can kind of cut through some of the mistakes that I made and just go straight to the stuff that I'm reading here and... Uh, and, uh, and and get things right from the from the get go. So a lot of experience in what you write, um, love it, uh, and and I hope people really learn from this. And and again, just thanks for sharing a little bit here today. Really appreciate it, mate. Yeah, my pleasure. And congratulations on the great work you've done. I followed your career as well uh, from a distance uh, for a long time because we met many many years ago, and I've always followed what you've done I, I can't take credit for anything i do i stand as they say i stand on the shoulders of greats and if it wasn't for forbes carlisle and bill sweetenham and don talbot and john carew and david marsh and dave solo or Banchek, some of those great people that have given me their time that if i didn't have the opportunity to stand on their shoulders uh, you'd probably be talking to yourself right now because i wouldn't be here so i have to say thank you to all the people that have given me the great honor of allowing me their time and and sharing their ideas with me over the last 30 years or so yeah absolutely uh i agree but you know without you writing it and without me putting this podcast together then uh, a lot of that stuff would just you know be, be gone wouldn't be shared so i'm glad uh you've done what you've done i'm glad i'm doing what i'm doing we can share this stuff and um you know what, what I found in this in this COVID period is it's a small world, you know, like, and, and people want connection. People want uh, sharing of information. And that's so what you've tried to do for many years. I've tried to condense it now and, and get video out there. So um, we're, we're both doing it together. Uh, so hopefully people will look at this stuff for many years to come. So thanks, mate. Appreciate it. And um, have a good one, all right? Stay well, stay safe.